Hello, listeners. My name is David Blakesley, and you are listening to episode 138 of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is a series of podcast episodes where we go through the Criterion Collection in chronological order of its original theatrical release. We are coming very close to the end of 1972, a, uh, a year that I've been covering for the last like three years now, maybe even longer than that. Uh, but uh, yes, we are in December of 1972, and the film up for discussion today is Melvin Van Peebles' adaptation of his own, uh, first it was a novel, then it was a play, then it was a film, then it was a Broadway stage production, Don't Play Us Cheap. Uh, this is, or has been, a pretty obscure entry into the uh, Criterion Collection, a film that not a lot of people had seen prior to its release on Blu-ray uh, back in uh, 2021. Sadly, right before, or right after Melvin Van Peebles had passed away, uh, this set had been in the works for a while. Uh, Mr. Van Peebles uh, left this earthly realm, and a week or two later, um, this box set made its debut. And uh, really raised his profile as a, as a as an artist and as a creative presence and a force, well beyond the reputation that had been established for him many years prior, uh, when he uh, filmed and released Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, back in 1971. Now I had covered that film uh, four years ago. It turns out in in 2019, actually pre-pandemic. It's just kind of crazy to think back that far. And of course, at that time, uh, Sweet Sweetback only had a Criterion Collection because it had once upon a time been a Laserdisc. Uh, but uh, since then, a lot's changed uh, in the world and in the uh, perhaps in the reputation and the legacy of Melvin Van Peebles. So we're going to get into that. We're going to kind of recap a little bit of Melvin Van Peebles' career, what got him to this point, what was his life like after the rousing and unexpected success of Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, and uh, and maybe a little bit of where he went from here. So I've got a couple guests. One is a familiar voice, so I'll introduce him first. Richard, how are you doing tonight? Richard Doyle? Hey, I'm doing good. All right. Always great to have you on, and again, we really appreciate your adventurousness to just to kind of pick up whatever uh, the queue has in store for us. And my second guest is Aaron Strand. Uh, Aaron, welcome to the show. Really nice to have you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, I definitely want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to listeners. I sought you out for this episode. I came across some work you did, uh, kind of found you through TikTok, an app where I like to play around a little bit there. But you also host a podcast of your own called Behind the Slate. I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself, your podcast, and the work that you've done on the life and times of Melvin Van Peebles. 
Of course. Yeah. Thank you so much. So uh, like David said, my name is Aaron Strand. I'm a, a filmmaker and actor based in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, a longtime cinephile, movie lover, and a podcast listener. And it was about a year ago that I launched uh, my podcast, Behind the Slate, like David mentioned. And it is a film history podcast where I take historical deep dives into the life and work of cinema's greatest directors. And in the past year, I have only managed to cover two directors because I've ended up uh, releasing two five-part, 10-plus-hour biography series, um, which I kind of wasn't expecting when I started my podcasting project, but that just is kind of how the work went. And um, it's also kind of the the podcast that I enjoy listening to. I enjoy the long-form storytelling. So I started mm-hmm. off with a, um, a five-part series on Charlie Chaplin, And then for my second director, I picked Melvin Van Peebles, thinking that I would knock him out in a single episode. And as I started researching, (laughs) oh my God, was I wrong. So that that ended up being another five-part series. Yeah, and I think you had some auxiliary episodes as well, some interviews with people who've done other work on him. I mean, I haven't listened to all of them, but it's just as I was going through your queue, it's like, yeah, I listened to the full five-part series, and you're right, that's how these podcast things go. You know, you start with a little concept and notion, and then all of a sudden you're you're kind of deep in the thick of it, but you you have to give it its due coverage, right? <laughs> and exactly. as, and as, I, as I definitely discovered to your series – Melvin Van Peebles is a very multifaceted, fascinating figure uh, who cannot easily be summed up, even though in the popular imagination for people who even know who he is, uh, you know, Sweet Sweetback is kind of like his big crowning achievement. Uh, but perhaps because of you know racial stereotypes or just kind of our uh, innate uh, desire to sort of categorize and pigeonhole people, you think of him as the black exploitation guy, the guy who kind of set the stage for things like Shaft and Superfly and Cleopatra Jones and Coffee, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And there was so much more going on. So I kind of want to give you a chance to kind of maybe introduce Melvin Van Peebles and maybe broaden people's opinions or understanding of, of who he was and what he was about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Melvin Van Peebles is a genius polymath who I kind of have come to learn is a sort of secret driver of culture. He he was so ahead of his time that I think it's really only um, it's really only in our modern day, like in the 2020s, that his work and his legacy is really starting to come into focus. Um, he was originally born in Chicago. Um, and he went to school at uh, Ohio Wesleyan. Uh, after school, he joined um, the Air Force. He was one of the first commissioned African American officers in the Air Force. Um, he was also he was kind of a genius at school. He was constantly ahead of his grade class. I think he graduated high school when he was like sixteen years old. Um, and so he was in, he was a commissioned officer in the Air Force uh, before he was. Um, even a legal uh, drinking age. And um, anyway, so uh, he kind of had this already amazing life. He, he ends up leaving the Air Force. He has a child uh, with a, he marries a white woman. Uh, this was in the 50s. So he didn't feel safe in the Air Force under those circumstances. He left the Air Force. He goes to San Francisco uh, and becomes a, 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 a grip man on a cable car. And it's while working as a grip man on a cable car that he begins to express himself artistically. He ends up writing a book um, called The Big Heart. And from there, someone told him, hey, this book, it ended up being a photo book. Someone told him, hey, this book is kind of like a movie. You should try making movies. And so 
with no prior training and no prior experience, he ends up starting to make these short films. And it was a total uh, trial by fire, uh, but he ended up making three short films. And in the late 50s, he took them to Hollywood in the hopes of of getting a job. And there was um, uh, absolutely no uh, black directors in Hollywood at this point. There was barely any black uh, crew members at this point. The Hollywood unions were notoriously discriminating, and he was basically laughed out of the building. So he, in a, a mixture of frustration and um, just kind of screw you guys, he ups and goes to uh, Holland to Amsterdam where he was going to get a degree in astronomy because when he was in the Air Force he fell in love with navigating by the stars but the acting and theater bug had really bit him so um, it was in Holland that his wife left him uh, took the kids back home and um, he ends up uh, acting for the Dutch National Theater he teaches himself enough Dutch to to act on stage and at some point uh, his films end up in the hands of Henri Langlois of the Cinémathèque Française. And they show his films, and he gets invited to Paris. And once his films are shown, he's, uh, he's kind of inspired again. He moves to Paris. He's homeless. He's a street singer. And um, what's amazing is that it would not be another six years before he actually made a movie. Um, instead, he, he works for the French satirical magazine Harakiri, uh, which is, we now know as Charlie Hebdo. Um, he, uh, write, he starts writing novels in French, and he starts writing these novels all so that he can become a French writer and get a French director's card. And all that builds up to 1967 when he makes his uh, debut feature film called The Story of a Three-Day Pass, which is this kind of amazing combo between American sensibilities and uh, French New Wave. Uh, and it's a, a, um, a film about Amer an American soldier, a black soldier, who meets a French girl, and they have this kind of romantic tryst together. Uh, absolutely lovely film. This film gets selected to go to the San Francisco International Film Festival in 1967. Among other films at that festival uh, were works by, uh, it was uh, Satyajit Ray's uh, The Coward was there. Um, one of the Agnes Varda's films was there. Uh, it was a very big festival. Anyway, he goes to this festival as the first African-American to direct a feature-length film since, um, you know, the end of segregation, since, since race films were a thing. Um, so it's been like 20 years since a black American uh, uh, man or woman uh, has made a feature film. And here he is uh, presenting this film and uh, kind of a major, major moment. And the, the sad irony is that he had to go all the way to France to do it. Well, yeah. um, anyway, he, um, <laughs> he this film has, has success. Now, this is where it kind of gets crazy, and I'll try to keep this very, very brief. But at this time, he's also making music. He releases these albums of like spoken word jazz uh, under the name Brer Soul. And these albums are some of the very first like proto rap that has ever been released. I mean, this is way before um, uh, uh, Gil Scott Heron releases uh, "The Revolution Will Not Be Televised." Gil Scott Heron was inspired by Melvin Van Peebles, uh, which is just mind blowing. Well, mm -hmm. after um, um, after Ozzie Davis uh, is hired to um, uh, make "Cotton Comes to Harlem" and um, of course, uh, 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 the Learning Tree. Uh, who, uh, God, his name is escaping. Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks. Thank you. Of course, yep. mm -hmm. Gordon Parks is hired to make Learning Tree. 
Melvin gets his shot uh, working for Columbia Studios with his film, The Watermelon Man, um, which he did not write. Um, but his studio experience is, is terrible. Um, he makes Watermelon Man. It's a moderate success. Uh, but he hates working for the studio. And so he turns down a three-picture deal and he goes off to make his own movie, Sweet, Sweet, Back, Badass Song, which, of course, is this anti-establishment. He makes it totally independently in a time and era when making independent movies was almost unheard of, certainly for an African-American man who's making a film, a black power film, um, you know, that um, uh, has these really, really, for 1970, these really edgy themes. He has no distribution. He has no help. He goes from theater to theater and releases this thing himself. Um, he roadshows it himself. And it becomes one of the highest grossing films of 1971. It's a absolute miracle. Um, the film made... Uh, um, the, equi- the the 2022 equivalent of what that film made would be $106 million box office. Um, so, uh, and after, and what's, okay. And yeah, so after amazing. the success of Sweetback, what's kind of crazy is that his songs had simultaneously been workshopped by these other authors. And so almost as soon as Sweetback is released, he gets approached by a Broadway producer named Manny Eisenberg and says, hey, we want to take this play that we've created out of your songs called Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death to Broadway. And he says, okay. And so this show comes to Broadway. It opens and it's, a, again, all black themed show. It's all about uh, uh, life in a uh, urban um, black neighborhood, presumably Harlem, although they never say what it is. It's a musical, um, and uh, all with his weird spoken word proto-rap jazz. And um, at first, the film is a flop because white audiences don't want to go see it. So Melvin, again, does this incredible grassroots campaign to bring the African-American community to Broadway, many of which, many of these people had never been to Broadway before. And the show ends up running for over 300 performances. It's nominated for 11 Tony Awards, winning three of them. It was given the longest performance slot ever in the tone, in the history of the Tonys. And before that show was even done with its run, Melvin had his next idea, which is I want to simultaneously film a musical and release it on Broadway at the same time. And to do that, he goes back into his catalog, uh, adapting a novel that he had written, and then he had adapted it into a play in French called Au Fait à Harlem, um, The Harlem Party. And that is what became Don't Play Us Cheap. And Don't Play Us Cheap really kind of caps this incredible you know, uh, really five-year span where Melvin Van Peebles was just on fire. Um, and it's really a sort of, um, and it's really sort of the end of his highly prolific f- period because uh, as we will get into, uh, this film uh, was not released and Melvin Van Peebles would not direct another film until the early 90s. Okay, I, <laughs> I'll try to cut yeah. it off there. <laughs> <laughs> but very, I mean, but the thing is, it was very concise for all of the accomplishments and all the information that is really essential to convey. So thank you, Aaron, for having that all summed up and ready to go on cue. Uh, Richard, I want to kind of give you a chance to get into the conversation. So, um, you know, we've just heard a really nice recap of this kind of pivotal juncture of, of Van Peebles' career. Now, tell us a little bit about your experience watching Melvin Van Peebles' films or your your understanding of his reputation and just kind of follow up from there i actually saw watermelon man first i saw it okay. in the 
in the 90s on VHS and shortly after saw Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. It, both films I really liked, and I knew about Story with Three Day Pass and Don't Play Us Cheap, but neither of them were really all that easy to see at the time. And I'd kind of, you know, bracketed fan peoples away for a long, for many years, just as the guy who made these two films. Um, but I, in the interim, I'd also seen the film that uh, his son made about the making of um, mm-hmm. Sweet Sweetbacks, Badass. Right. And, and a documentary about fan peoples called How to Eat Your Watermelon in Public. And get with, away with it with, with pipe what, how to eat your watermelon with white people and enjoy it so yes <laughs> even yes, more yes, pointed <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah and had been quite impressed with the man but it's only in recent years that i heard basically the entire story that aaron just told and thought well like this is like an incredibly sort of self-invented man that yeah. uh, sort of is a huge artistic success that we haven't really been celebrating yep like creating himself from almost nothing in a way, you know, like no training, no, yeah, no normal route into the business, just like forcing his way in and creating like definitely when watching this film, I thought like a really unique vision, you know, like not, not the kind of film you expect to see from someone who just made sweet, sweet backs, badass song. Right. Uh, that, and that's the thing with, with this, box it melvin van people's essential films is what criterion released it at it's like spine numbers 1093 through 96 or something like that and then and then that that badass documentary that you mentioned is like the fifth feature film it's kind of a supplement because it's not really a melvin van people's film it's mario van people's uh very connected to all the films there but so yeah so criterion kind of put this i would say pretty definitive presentation of melvin van people's you know film work at least uh, into this really beautiful, nicely appointed set. And that's what, what impressed me is like this, the incredible range, because each of these four films is a very distinctive work in its own genre. I mean, honestly, this may sound like a bit of a stretch here, but it, it kind of made me think about Stanley Kubrick, how he would just sort of pick different genres or different types of films and sort of do something really, you know, unique and memorable and and distinctively him but you know showed his range showed his versatility yeah van peebles i'm not going to say he's a director at, on the level of kubrick but he certainly he nailed it whatever he did i mean the fact that you know his his first plays win tony award nominations and awards i mean people work entire careers and lifetimes to get to that point and he just kind of knocks it out you know he he breaks open uh, the the film genres and and changes the marketplace of, of commercial distribution of film uh, with sweet sweetback and 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 you know engages a vast new market that that of course the studios you know kind of in their lemming like way followed along and said wow there's a lot of black people who want to watch movies about people like them you know yeah and uh, yeah it's just it's just really remarkable uh, how successful he was and yet just as he sort of gets that pinnacle, the, the doors slam shut and he has to go make his way into Wall Street trading and other things yeah. just to kind of keep finding his way through the world. Go ahead, Aaron. Uh, kind of let's, let's kind of keep the conversation rolling here. Let's talk a little bit more about the, this film. Yeah, well, you know, this this film, I mean, this film is, uh, I, I'll be honest, like this film is not my favorite film of his. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, 
I mean, it's it's bizarre. It's a it's a it's a strange <laughs> film. It's yeah. a strange film that I um that it doesn't quite um resonate with me like you know at, on an individual level. But I think that's mm-hmm. like part of the design. I mean, you know, I'm you know I'm a white guy. Like, and this right. film exemplifies uh, an image of of black joy um, that is uh, certainly for its time. Uh, quite revolutionary and not like anything else. You know, some of the reviews at the time really comment on how this film expresses blackness and celebrates blackness, but not by opposing it to whiteness or not uh, under the auspices of sort of oppression and racism and all these other things, but simply blackness and black joy for the sake of black joy. And that was a revolutionary thing at the time. And I think that that's really worth you know, noting and um, it's a lesson that we're like that the entertainment as an industry is still learning today. And, you know, I can watch it and say, you know, there's things about this that I don't quite get, but I think that's exactly how it's supposed to be, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- th- this is kind of um, for white guys like us, like the three of us here. Uh, <laughs> there, there, this is a little bit of a bridge into a community that we can really only be sort of vicarious bystanders. But to me, there's a lot to enjoy here. I mean, it really is. And again, the the lack of sort of predictability or formula. You know, again, if, if you're starting from Sweetback or even any, any of those other films, none of them really prepare you for this or seem like the likely follow-up, especially as we think about, you know, in, in traditional showbiz terms. Once a film makes the kind of box office that Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song did, well, okay, we're going to get Sweet Sweetback 2, <laughs> or we're going to get something that sort of plays on those same themes because if they like this, they're going to, you know, they're going to come back for more. In some ways, this may have been almost like a, a radical undercutting of what audiences were expecting from him it, once they saw the name Melvin Van Peebles, just because of, you know, the way we're all sort of conditioned. If, if a director makes it big, doing a type of movie you can almost expect that the next one is going to be sort of a variation on that and while yeah he is definitely dealing with themes of of the black community i mean that, that the black community was the star of the show in sweetback and this is about the brothers and sisters who get their groove on on a saturday night so he is kind of making that same connection here but you're right there the the um yeah the the kind of animosity the the, the tension the polarization of us versus them that is clearly a, a strong theme in, in the three predecessors uh, you know from three day pass where you've got the soldier who's kind of in a kind of maybe a little bit of a, a patronizing situation a little bit of a tokenism there he, he gets promoted by the the army sergeant uh, you know and he's given a free weekend goes out gets himself in some trouble and finds that he's got to pay the price you know and a watermelon man is a as a kind of a, a racial juxtaposition a, a white guy who wakes up one morning and inexplicably he's black and he's got to live with that and he's got to figure out how to reorient his life now that he's seen by society and and by his wife and family as a different person than who they thought he was yeah uh sweetback of course has all kinds of the the radical militant uh, you know, a political subtext here. You're right. This is this is just black folks in their community, and not not just black folks, but but poor folks. You know, people who are of very humble means. They're they're people who've moved up from the south. They're up in Harlem. They're working in sort of domestic service. Uh, you know, sometimes physical labor or sorting mail or whatever the case may be. 
they're just barely making it. And what little they have is sort of saved up for these big blowouts on Saturday night. And, uh, and you know, the, the different stages of life that are represented here from, from youth, uh, coming of age, into elderly and old age and, and people all in the middle there. Uh, you know, this is, this is a, a film and a play that was meant to be sort of a communal expression. The film never really got its, its due you know, justice as far as distribution and, and seeing, being seen by, by its intended audience. But the play itself turned out to be pretty successful as far as performances, although my understanding is that Van Peebles really didn't make all, all that much money out of this. He, he got recognition. It advanced his career for a certain amount of time. But it was not anywhere close to the you know financial windfall that that he got from Sweetback. Yeah, that 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 is correct. And, and uh, both of his plays, basically, he kind of broke even or was a little bit in the red um, because in order to he, he turned it into a social mission of facilitating mm-hmm. um, bringing outside audiences to Broadway to diverse you know to bring diversity to a Broadway audience. And so to do that, he was giving you know massive ticket discounts and sort of like group right. sales and and just this incredible grassroots campaign. But at the same time, I mean he he had made so much money from Sweetback. Uh, you know, he felt, he, he spoke about how he had a responsibility, that this was money that he was merely in custody of, that it was not his. Yeah, and that's also very, I mean, very admirable, very commendable that he, he didn't just kind of, you know, move out to the Hamptons, <laughs> you know, right. or anything like that. Right. Yeah, because, I mean, he was. He was putting busloads of kids you know, down coming down from Harlem to sit in a Broadway theater and just get a little bit of a cultural awakening and and see what it's like down here at the lower end of Manhattan, and uh, you know, and and building community that way. And, and you're right. And and again, he was he was pretty much the brains and the uh, the money behind Sweetback. So you know, he had the rights to just about everything. So other than distribution fees, you know, he was able to to rake that in. But it, it never seemed like that money really went to his head or became kind of the end in itself, uh, for better or for worse. You know, I don't know if he struggled financially, if he went through some lean years. It seems likely that he probably would have because he, you know, he had a very, you know, a long, a long uh, life ahead of him from this flush of early success. But it was very interesting how he chose to sort of use that leverage uh, that, that, you know, the success of that film gave him. So, Richard, what are some of your thoughts? I mean, we've heard a little bit from Aaron that you know maybe this isn't his favorite of of the set, and that's very understandable. But there's there's a lot of wonderful things about this film, as far as I I'm concerned. But uh, what are what are your thoughts, Richard? This might be the favorite of mine from the ones I've seen of his. Wow. Um, um I I like Watermelon Man. I like Sweet Sweet Peck's Badass Song. Um, I thought I wasn't going to like this film, partly because its broad sense of humor is not something I'm all that fond of. Mm-hmm. But it really won me over. I mean, partly because I think the the musical performances in this film are incredibly good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and partly it, it sort of won me over with the um, it sort of wore me down in a way, which sounds more <laughs> oppressive than i mean it. It, it let's say it won me over with its message right yeah mm-hmm. uh, which was really uh, like an in, intensely positive uh story about among other things perseverance but positive attitude and you know the way people celebrate and and things like that and uh, it 
it, it, it really appealed to me in a way that um, both of his earlier films feel just good to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. like I like sweet, sweet Beck's badass song, but I think it kind of like goes on too long. And, and I honestly, at this point, don't remember Watermelon Man all that well because I haven't seen it in years. But this one, uh, it, it really won me over, especially the musical performances. Like, yeah. this is a really wonderful film from that perspective. Like, some of the musical performances are incredible. All around here we've been to the school of living. I got my rules from the book of life. We pick up our lessons from the school of living. We get our rules from the book of life. Yeah, and I'm definitely thinking I will want to be a little generous with some of the musical excerpts in this episode because I really want I want listeners. I will assume people who maybe listen to this podcast regularly maybe have not sought this film out yet. It is available on the Criterion Channel. You don't have to invest in the set. If you've got a subscription, you can check it out that way. Uh, you can also find the soundtrack on I think most of the popular musical streaming services if you just want to hear the music. And it's it is a good soundtrack. Uh, now, when I first watched it, yeah, I was a little bit in that. Uh, this is going to be a little bit cheesy and some of the uh, especially those early scenes where where the the company is just sort of sitting around in the context of this house party and they're you know when i bought it in this sandwich and close my eyes i could swear i was right back down home at a good old southern saturday night party don't tell that lie brother why did you put a you was back down south because if you was back down home your hands would be too sore to pick cotton to holler hold the sandwich in the first place well <laughs> well maybe i ain't got cotton picking's hands no more but mm, i sure got red caps back <laughs> it feels kind of stagey like they're they're reciting their lines and they're laughing uproariously and you can just sort of feel like oh they've rehearsed this little bit you know 50 <laughs> times and and so it does have some of that sort of forced theatricality to it but honestly as it, as they get into the play the the warmth and the humanity and the vitality of these characters really does bring them alive and you do have a like i, I kind of already said kind of a uh, a smattering of archetypes from the black community you know people who are at different stations of life and sort of epitomizing a character and i would imagine a lot of the you know the african-american members of the audience was oh that that reminds me of my dad or my uncle or my mom or or even myself you know and and i think that is that is the winning ingredient here you know the, both the performances and and capturing that because that is one of the you know one of the bittersweet uh aspects of of theatrical performance is that 
you know, there's nothing quite like the, the power of the live presence of somebody singing that song or performing that dance or doing what they do right, right there on stage in front of you. And you're all having this communal experience. But then once it's done, it's done. And so you have, you know, sometimes the opportunity to capture some of those moments on film, which preserves it for the longer term. And I think it's especially wonderful that we have this record of that performance it's not just you know the camera on a tripod filming the play there is some artistic and cinematic stuff going on here and some of that is to more or less success you know there are some elements here where it's like his editing is pretty funky (laughs) and, and pretty crude you know and 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 it's like you know you you feel sometimes like he's just kind of whipping stuff together here. Like you, if you want to do these kind of flash edits, give us at least enough time to see what's actually going on on the screen, right? <laughs> because they they're they're so choppy. But uh, Aaron, yeah, to, let's hear a little bit more of your thoughts on 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 what worked for this what worked for you in this film, and and maybe were some of the areas where maybe things didn't quite connect as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you guys kind of really hit the nail on the head. I mean. Um... Uh, the the musical performances are are really really great. I think the songs are wonderful. I think really the highlight is pr- is probably early on with Joshy Joe Armstrong's performance of uh, "You Cut Up the Clothes in the Closet of Our Dreams," uh, "Closet of My Dreams." Sorry. which is just, I mean, that one just like sticks in my head, you know, all the time. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful song. Um, and uh, I really like the, uh, even though Melvin's editing is always like quite jarring, which according yeah. to him is like completely <laughs> by design, you know, and like that's what he exactly as he wanted it. Um, but I, I, I really love Bob Maxwell's cinematography. I really love mm-hmm. Bob Maxwell's cinematography in Sweetback. Um mm-hmm. Uh, just a little bit of background on him. But, uh, Melvin hired Bob Maxwell because he was uh, uh, like um, that weird sort of like between nudie cuties and hardcore pornography. He was a, a porn uh, cinematographer. He ran a family porn business where he was the cinematographer. His wife was the producer. His daughter was the makeup artist and his son-in-law was the gaffer. <laughs> um, it's a legit operation. What are you talking about? Ex- We're making the art. Here. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he, he shot, uh, among such great titles as the Ramrodder uh, from 1969, which I believe was filmed on spawn ranch while the Manson family was living oh. there. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, so he's kind of ha- you know, he's this, like, has this, has this like weird little corner of cinema history. Uh, Melvin goes to porn theaters and hires him based on his 
pornographic cinematography and then brings I like it, your work man yeah <laughs> you yeah. got something there he said every time i went to a porno and it looked good it was always bob maxwell so uh and because he needed a non-union cinematographer to shoot sweetback uh, to get around the unions he went with bob maxwell so uh he brings bob maxwell back for this and i just think bob maxwell's use of um uh, use of color, his use of like shadows, you know, really harsh shadows um, captured in that beautiful 70s, um, you know, film look, uh, I think is just really, really stunning. Um, so I really love I really love that. And um, I also I yeah, the, the performances are just so I, I, like the theatricality of the performances definitely wins me over through the course of the film, you know, just another little like historical anecdote. And this is something that I didn't really get into on my podcast about this is that um, the, the film and the play taps into this rather uh, uh, strange um, uh, theatrical tradition in America that I, you know, again, as a white guy, like don't really know about, which is that there's this incredible theater circuit of black uh, plays, which are of- often performed in churches. They often have religious themes. And he said, Sit right down and Thank thee, amen. Amen. And um, this very active circuit has been going on for almost a century. And what I was thinking about today as preparing for this episode is that in many ways, this this movie is a, is a precursor to the work of Tyler Perry, who's probably mm. the most successful mm. director, writer to come out of this black theater circuit. That's how Tyler Perry made his money to, to make his first movie was that he, he became incredibly popular as a, as a theater director in this theatrical circuit, mm. um, which is just mind blowing that, that, that he did that. Um, uh, yeah. And um, uh, anyway, so I think like a lot of those elements, like definitely, definitely really, really work for me. I, you know, maybe, maybe this is just my, like, this is my, maybe this is my like cinephile showing, but I, of all the Van Peebles films, story of a three day pass is probably my favorite, but you mm-hmm. know, it's so sort of steeped in the new wave that it's kind of like more tailor made for me. Um, mm-hmm. But those are the things about this film that I think really, really resonate. Yeah. And I think given these performers a chance to sort of, you know, again preserve their legacy these are people who really know their stuff each each character and i guess we, we haven't really done a synopsis of the story but <laughs> the, we've kind of alluded to it, it it's it's a, it's a saturday night party at a working class apartment uh, in harlem uh, miss maybell uh, esther roll who's known probably most famous for her role as florida in the old tv sitcom good times and she was the maid florida in maud kind of a spinoff of all in the family going back to your 
vintage 70s TV stuff I watched as a kid growing up. Uh, but Esther Roll, she's the familiar face of, of the of the crew here, uh, of the cast. And um, she's hosting this party. It's a sort of a coming out party for her young uh, niece, Ernestine. Uh, 20s, 20th birthday coming up. Ernestine has just come up from down south and is just kind of settling into this community. She's got a job at a retail store. I think it's like a, a fashion store or something like that. And uh, and so she's the one who's kind of got that potential, that future. And uh, they're, they're there to celebrate her and just to kind of blow off some steam after another tough, long working week. And that's basically the the, the pretext of the film. It's a bunch of folks sitting around an apartment, uh, ha- sharing drink, having some songs, telling stories, you know, dancing a little bit, just basically cutting loose on a Saturday night. And that's that's basically the, the whole concept here, except for the fact that there's these two little imps, uh, demons, devils, mischief makers, who decide we're going to just spoil their joy. We're going to just come in and mess things up because that's because we're evil. <laughs> we're bad characters. That's what we do, right? And and uh, literally and, and with the, the song, with the song, I'm a bad character. <laughs> there you go. And, in case, in case you missed it, there it is. You know? And and so they come in, and and of course they're they're kind of in these uh, kind of outlandish outfits, you know, capes and bright red and little devil horns and all of that kind of stuff, and and they're just there to to stir things up and to to ruin the party. But the perseverance of of this black joy and and these people who just do not want to let life get them down, and they, and they've had to work through presumably so much more difficult stuff already just to get to this point you know all the the, the devil's you know worst work only just is a, a, a diversion it's a bump in the road you, know, you, you try to break my records no they don't break you try to drink my liquor now we got we got more they, you know eat my sandwiches you know well we'll just make some more uh they're not gonna they're not gonna let this party be thrown off by some you know, two-bit amateurs who want to come in and, and mess things up. And you also get this look at the black community, sort of the relationships within itself, uh, within within their own ranks, as uh, the little latecomers to the party, the Johnsons come in, and, and they've got affectations. They put on airs. They kind of consider themselves a little bit of a cut above. You know, in fact, the, the father's like, I, I don't want to be common, you know, and that's kind of his tagline there. <laughs> and so you see within this little community, even there, there's kind of some, some class and uh, prestige differences there that they kind of, you know, they got to stick together. They're all part of the same kind of social fabric. And yet there's little tensions there. And, and even one of the imps, when he finally tries to blow things up by telling off the, 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 the wife of this couple, they're, they're happy to see her taken down a notch and, and they just celebrate the imp and oh thank you so much. We've never had the nerve to say it ourselves, but you, you told it like it is. And so all of these little, um, you know, all the all these little sa- sabotage, subterfuge attempts just got turned around to the positive, and that is the heart of the film. Is just we're just going to keep moving through it. You got a little romance, a little uh, song and dance type of thing going on there, and so so it's a it's a very well crafted evening's entertainment if you just think about it as a stage production. We're going to give each of these characters a chance to have their solo spotlight. When they're singing out front, the rest of the group is back there as kind of the, the chorus or the background. Uh, so, yeah, you, you've got a very nice sort of theatrical display here of, of comedy, uh, a little bit of you know romance, a little bit of tender feelings, and, and uh, you know, just kind of just kind of taking a look at, at the, the, the struggles that life puts us through, and especially within the context of the black community. And that is that is just a, a beautiful thing, and I think that is why I can certainly understand 
uh, people gravitating to this as maybe their favorite of the set. Uh, one of my uh, online friends, Michael Hutchins, a very noted, uh, he's a big fan of Stephen Sondheim uh, and, and Broadway and theatrical musicals in general. Um, you know, he wrote a really nice review on Letterboxd. I'll probably have to put a link in there. Um, because, because he, he feels like this is a really a supreme artistic achievement just on its own terms. Yes. The, the filmmaking is low budget. Uh, the editing we've already talked about is kind of funky. Um, some people would say, look, this is just kind of, uh, a, a, a tossed off production. In fact, I, I do have some of the links that are pretty critical negative reviews of the film mm. uh, to my thinking, they didn't really give it a chance or maybe they got put off early on. Uh, before things got rolling and never really kind of regrouped and, and gave it a reevaluation. I, I think this is an important film and, and one that probably Criterion would not have released on its own terms. I mean, it, it is obscure. It is kind of buried in the archives, but I think it, it deserves the attention that it's getting as part of this bigger set. I, I, I do think the editing is intentional <laughs> for for whatever it's worth. Like it doesn't feel sloppy to me. It it feels it, it feels somewhat new French New Wavy without necessarily mm-hmm. being completely imp- appropriate. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I was of two minds about it when watching it. At times, like scenes would get edited in a very strange sort of overlapping way, and I think, why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. But at other times, it felt like he was transitioning through scenes by mixing a bunch of scenes together to do something like a transition between the scenes. Like Mm -hmm. it it never felt accidental to me or inept. It felt like this is the way he wanted to make the film. And I think it's sort of a self-taught filmmaker. He's got a style that like the editing in this felt like the editing in sweet, sweet bags, badass song. Yeah. But very different films. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very different. Yeah, he'll he'll use like solarizations and yeah. thing, like mm-hmm. that, like to to kind of cover up for some of the you know the dark lighting or or some of yeah. the the low budget limitations. Well, we'll just do something fancy with the double exposures here, and that'll sort of cover it up. <laughs> Aaron, <laughs> yeah. I think you've probably studied some of his filmmaking techniques and prowess. What are your, some of your thoughts along that line? Um. Yeah. I mean, he. <sighs> It's it's really hard to pin down because Melvin's also like the kind of guy that like you know he'll he he'll always put his like his spin on things you know you kind of like you, <laughs> you can take him at yeah. his word but like you also like I don't know there's a part of me that also like doesn't completely take him at his word he swears that every little bit is intentional and you know there's stories of him doing talkbacks at least about Sweet Sweetback's badass song and like audience members challenging him that his color was too or it was too dark or that he underexposed the film mm-hmm. and he would jump off stage and punch them like it, <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> and like these are Q&A like a and fisticuffs right? yeah i mean and these are in like university settings you know what i mean so it's just like it's just totally mind-blowing um i i listen i think that i think that melvin van peebles is a is is a true genius in that he was led by both intellect and by something greater. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think that his artistic choices are this truly unique combination of 
intellectual thought process while also sort of happy accident and he kind of is constantly stumbling upon things and so all of this because 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 watermelon man uh, uses a bunch of like pretty wild colors and and jump cuts and 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 then of course it's taken to the next level and sweep back and and same into here um i i i kind of just chalk it all up to like man this is just like a total artist and i'm you know i'm always i'm on the ride i'm on the van people's ride yeah uh, yeah 100 <laughs> percent yeah it's like when the uh abstract expressionist kind of splatters paint on the canvas i meant to do that well there you go it's just it's kind of there's a random quality to it i think some of those those jump cuts those little flash inserts there um maybe if he just held the image for a couple more frames we could see it what is that that's actually going on there and so yeah and and he also does some interesting things with kind of getting behind the stage you know you're you're seeing from the up up from the side of the set that nobody ever sees it's not like the audience member you're you're like behind the rafters there, looking down through an angle through like a slotted window or something like that to see characters you know um there's, there's those little rat bits at the beginning and the end there of just <laughs> really fascinating stuff. Like he's got these concepts, these ideas or this mental vision that he's trying to capture. And, you know, again, I'm sure working with very limited resources and you just got to do what you got to do and, and get it done. Yeah. There is a very real sense in this film where it feels like he's like conscious of it being a lot like a filmed play. Mm-hmm. but trying to make it not like a filmed play. Yeah. You know, like in doing these, these visual things that take it out of that framework, but some of them work and some of them don't, you know, but it, it does feel very much like somebody like intuitively understanding that this can't just be a filmed play. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree um, that he's, yeah, I think it's I, I think you feel that sort of tension of him sort of like wrestling with that with that dynamic. I mean his his you know, Melvin's uh decision making for all of his like artistic aspirations and and honesty, his decision making was always very uh financially driven. I mean, he was a marketer, uh first and foremost, and his idea was was that um they were he was gonna film the film. So they they, they shot this film in Santa Fe. Uh, first of all, because that was they yeah. they could rent a warehouse in Santa Fe, um, so they shipped all the actors from New York to Santa Fe, shot the film uh, over like six weeks, immediately shipped everybody back to New York where they started rehearsing in the Broadway space, and his original plan was that he was going to um, open the play on Broadway, and then once ticket sales started to lag, then he would release the film, which would then like generate buzz and and get more people back at the box office for the play. It was like this two pronged marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. That was that was what he was he was thinking. Um, obviously, it didn't it didn't quite work out that way. Um, uh, but but I do think that that's also sort of an interesting like guiding force to Melvin's whole um, uh, output. Yeah, he he's got sort of the stage two and three plans to keep things moving. So, what was the story with with this film? Lack of distribution or lack of exposure? Do you know know a little bit more about what happened there? Because I don't think he made this film strictly as a historic record just to preserve the performances. He 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 had intentions at least for that this film would be seen. 
uh, so that people who can't afford the ticket to New York or who live in other parts of the country could still kind of catch his latest production. But, but what happened there? Was it just a lack of interest or even active suppression by studios? What was going on? Well, a- absolutely. So um, one of uh, the, the answer is that we only really have Melvin's word and then kind of common sense to go off of. Um, and this is one of the big problems that I had in, in my series. And, and one of the things that I'm most proud of in my series is because there is no definitive biography on Melvin Van Peebles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, not to you know, completely toot my own horn, but I, I think my podcast is at this point probably the most complete like life story uh, of, of Van Peebles' work. And when I got to this section, it was really hard to decipher exactly what happened. But from the best that I can surmise, um, in making Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, Melvin Van Peebles basically pissed off every single person in power he could. <laughs> um, right, because he, he he worked around the unions. He kind of broke the rules. And he kind of, you know, he, he took more of the profits than the studios probably thought he was entitled to. Right? A- absolutely. I mean, he, he owned 100% of the film. He took all the profits. He, he worked with a distributor who was, uh, uh, again, a porn distributor that was tanking. And not only did he get the sweetest distribution deal of all time, but he actually got stock options in that company. And because of Sweetback, that company went on to success and he became even richer. Uh, mm. So so Melvin Van Peebles was like an all-time winner with Sweetback. I mean, he, he won. it's like he won like the lotto five times on the same day. And, uh, but in the pro- like I said, in the process, he, he, he flipped the finger at the studio heads by not signing their three-picture deal, he he flipped the finger at the unions. He flipped the finger at the whole distribution system. He pissed the ratings. Every, the, right. Oh, the ratings R- rated board? X by the all-white jury. Yeah, exactly. He refused to submit the film to the ratings board, right. and um, right. and then wrote an open letter that these white people were not qualified to accurately rate his film. So yeah, was, he says Tarzan is more pornographic. Yeah, than yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, and um, so he. And and look like that that abrasive style was a critical component to Sweetback's success, but it's almost as if like he only had that one shot to do that, and like he burned so many bridges in the process that um uh he he wasn't given another chance, and he tried to to release Don't Play Us Cheap it, throughout interviews. Um, he gives several interviews with the New York Times throughout 1971 and 1972, where he's constantly promising that Don't Play Us Cheap is about to come out. Um, Don't Play Us Cheap did show at a single benefit um, uh, screening in Atlanta in 1972. And then it uh, it won the award for best film of uh, the Brussels Film Festival in 1973. Mm. Those were the only two Mm -hmm. times it was shown publicly. And he only went to Europe after all the American doors were slammed in his face. Um, And... um, uh, uh, I I don't really so like I as far as like the actual details the studio memos of like why was this film never released um I don't know but I think the writing is pretty clear that the film was suppressed. Yeah, he he got one by on by the man with Sweetback but the man got the last word or at least tried to, you know, as far exactly. as his his uh, success as a as a filmmaker and working within or you know he he didn't work within the system uh, he and they made sure he couldn't work outside of it either uh, because you're right that is that is the bottom line if you can't get your film screened in theaters 
whatever people might think of it, whatever critical or festival awards you, you may, you know, have to put on your mantle, it's got to be seen, you know, you got to get the audiences in there. That's right. Yeah. Well, boy, yeah, and so that does kind of tap into some of these these bigger cultural issues, you know. And, and I think he recognized at a certain point that door has been closed to him. Um, what about his his Broadway success? So, like I say, he he's getting Tony Award nominations. That is nothing to take lightly. Now, I, I'm not a big student of the Broadway theater, and I don't know exactly how hard it is to to win Tony Awards. But I would have to think there's a lot of competition for that, even in what might be seen in the historic picture as down years or lean years. Uh, you know, there was probably a certain aspect like we see with Hollywood, whether it's Green Book or 12 Years a Slave or uh, the, the other version of Crash, you know, where <laughs> the awards become a little bit more self-congratulatory or, or we're going to we're going to bestow a little blessing on the on these black folks over here. So there might have been a little bit of that. I don't know. But um, do you have any more thoughts about, you know, you know did, did he decide to, to not pursue Broadway beyond these two films or beyond these two productions? Uh, Ain't supposed to die a natural death and don't play as cheap or. Was it kind of like he did his Broadway thing and then he just went on to other ventures because, again, he'd kind of done what he had to do and didn't want to get stuck in a, a rut or a formula? Oh, Mel- Melvin was trying to make films and get Broadway plays mounted throughout the rest of the 70s and the 80s. Okay. Yeah. And he was basically stymied at every turn. Um, mm-hmm. He he wrote uh, the film, um, and which was uh, eventually made with Richard Pryor called Greased Lightning. Um, yeah. and, um, he was supposed to direct it, but was fired by the studio before he ever got to set. Um, he basically, he basically had, um, the same, pr- uh, reputation problems in Broadway that he did in Hollywood and all of his efforts were, were stymied and he just could not get the traction. I, I mean, look, like I, I say this, I don't want to like in many ways, Melvin is a victim, but he also was so abrasive in getting his way because he had to be the system was so geared against him that he had to fight with tooth and nail but fighting tooth and nail in a collaborative art form you know will eventually you know becomes a a, a, um a a self-fulfilling prophecy and he was left alone and and was unable to do it so no he i mean he spent the next two decades of his life trying to get projects off the ground and just was never able to to get it over the finish line yeah, it seems like his iconoclasm and his his uncompromising, you know, fearlessness of just plunging into these projects is part of his greatness and has maybe secured a lasting reputation by folks like us who kind of take a closer look and see what was going on there. But you're right, it is a it it's it's a hard road because, you know, you are bucking the system and um, if you can't play within that system, uh, you're just not going to get a lot of a lot of slack. Um, but yeah, I, I I really appreciate you know what he accomplished there. But you recognize that he had to pay a price because his principles and his drive to succeed and and to make things happen on his own terms was just very singular. You know, he he did not really want to go along to get along in fact i think that feels like that's that's maybe part of the the unifying theme of these four films that really go in so many different directions uh, artistically or genre wise but you know what what unites them is that 
they are all Van Peebles films to the extent that he's got the control. Probably Watermelon Man is the one that was least under his control, but he still made it his film. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of famously, the way he kind of engineered the film to end on his terms rather than what the studio was hoping for, for where the lead character turned white again and you get your Hollywood ending, right? And he says, no, he's going to be black and he's going to live black and that's how it's going to be. And and even even then, that, that somewhat whimsical comedy ends on kind of a... Uh, kind of a, a martial note, you know, as they're all practicing the martial arts, and and it's like he's turning into a, a fighting machine now. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, Richard, give me some of your other thoughts on the film. Any uh, any pieces that you want to kind of you know bring to the forefront here, or or scenes, or songs, performances? Well, I, I, I would definitely agree that the uh, the the. Well, I know I'm drawing a blank on the name, but the the the, the closet number you shredded the clothes yeah you cut up my clothes in the closet of my dreams yeah yeah Mm -hmm. that's one of the highlights as well as the uh the quitting time number i ain't gonna quit until it gets time if the captain just keeps his boots off me oh and my sweet lucy just don't let me down and oh yes oh yes the silver frame ain't new the photo's tone but i got mama's picture too Oh, things on my mind. Oh, things on my mind. I wonder, I wonder when I get to the top of them ivory steps on my judgment day. Will he meet me and exchange this worn and torn old picture and frame for my own dear mother? Put me in arms and say, put me in arms and say, It's quitting time. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the four things on my mind, you know, a picture yeah. of my mama, sweet Lucy, the captain's boot, and quitting time. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, so awesome. Yeah. I'd throw in, uh, I think one of the problems he probably had distributing this film is that, like, for Sweetback, he was working with Jerry Gross, who's like a big exploitation distributor in this period right did like i drink your blood and things like that and there's no way that jerry gross would distribute this film right um because just because, of, because it doesn't tap into anything yeah you know right it's you know like like yeah. sweetback for all its idiosyncra- idiosyncrasies like taps into a like has clear like i can exploit this and i can exploit that oh absolutely yeah right and this one really doesn't and i think one of his problems with this film is it's not clear that it's not that it's not clear that there's an audience for it it's not clear that there's an audience that film studios or distributors can describe you know (laughs) yeah yeah there's a wholesomeness to it that obviously you're not going to get with sweetback you know People people came to Sweetback because of the 
controversy and the scandal and the, right. the, yeah, the right. provocation, you know, you don't get and that to, here. Right. And to a large extent, it's like the black exploitation market that kicks off and is going on already by the time this film was made is films that are recognizable genre films with mm-hmm. black stars. Right. Yeah. Yep. And this is not, you know, <laughs> this is, this is a film playing very distinctly to a kind of black audience that isn't describable by straight film formulas. Right. So, mm-hmm. so nobody, nobody wants to touch it because they don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. And, and you can see why, it's easier to launch it as a play because there isn't this huge marketing structure that has to happen, you know? Right. It, it's an entertaining night at the theater, you know, yeah. song yeah. and dance and comedy. It, it's, it's entertainment, you know? And I think even in the, um, there's a black journal episode in 1972 kind of black oriented talk show, uh, where Van Peebles is, is, um, interviewed at length for about a half an hour and he himself acknowledged sort of almost like the riskiness of having a bunch of jolly black folks sitting around the campfire yeah. singing their song, you know, and how that could be seen as playing into certain stereotypes, you know, uh, the, the, the noble darky, uh, for, forgive me for using that term, but that's kind of how it could have been interpreted. And perhaps there were even some white folks who came to the theater to see that exact show. Um, that is... Um, something that i think van peebles recognized but he said i'm going to show these folks with dignity Uh, we're not going to be victimized we're not going to be lamenting our fate uh we're going to stand up because this is what our life you know our our options have afforded us and we're going to make the best of it uh but also not by sucking up or, or 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 kind of playing those jive games to to kind of curry favor from you know the white bosses and you know, the powers that be. And so, yeah, I, I, again, he's, he's cutting against the formula. He could have just kind of kept going down that same sweet back road and probably gotten the distribution and, you know, racked up another, you know, nest egg of, of cash and, and easy money, which we saw in, in black exploitation. Well, you, know, you got, you got shaft, you know, parts two and three. Go ahead. Oh, no. Well, I was gonna, I was going to say he yeah. was, he was, uh, he was trying to, he, he wrote, yeah? he wrote, okay. he wrote sweet back two and sweet back three which, really? Yeah. Okay. Which he which he said eventually Sweetback was gonna go like have adv- all these adventures in like uh, in Central America like take you okay. know like take like t- and like then like reinfiltrate America. I mean it was like he had this whole vision planned out and he was actively trying to raise funds hmm. for Sweetback too. I mean at least according to this article in, okay. New, in this interview in the Times that he gave huh. in seventy two. So he was. Do we have treatments or is there is there a, any kind of I haven't scripts or anything. Yeah. I haven't. I haven't read them. Now, I I have a okay. uh, in my podcast. I interview uh, a, a friend of mine, a man who who gave me my career as an actor, who was a, a very very close personal friend and collaborator of Van Peebles, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. Um, cool who 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 did go over, who spent a lot of time at his apartment, can testify to like the chest of of scripts that were that was there in Van Peebles' apartment of things that had mm. never been released and things that he'd worked on throughout his whole life. I believe Mario's in possession of, of all those things now. So maybe one day we'll get access to the archive, but uh, as of right yeah, now, I it's think unavailable. 
Does Ohio Wesleyan have some of that material too? Because I think they have like an award or some, or maybe a scholarship or something. It's, I went to the Wesleyan, Ohio Wesleyan website, and I think there's a link in the show notes. Yes. Uh, they've kind of embraced him as one of their distinguished alma mater. Maybe they didn't at one point in time, but, uh, you know, maybe later on they did. Yeah, Ohio Wesleyan is not a well-known university, I would imagine. You know, his his uh, sharpness as a student got him in there. And again, I don't know much about his, his academic career. But an interesting individual. But uh, yeah, would he, it would be fascinating to know what some of the uh, unrealized projects were if they were ever to be published or at least to summarize in some way. Yeah. I, I'm <laughs> fascinated to know what, what, what would have become of that character. Because again, with Sweetback, the whole key to that script is no cop out at the end. No That's noble right. lynching, <laughs> no, no, no going to politics. My politics is winning. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I mean, it's also it'd be. It, I think we'd probably all be surprised at what the Sweetback Two script might look back. Yeah, lo- might yeah. look like because because Sweetback One was I think on nineteen pages. <laughs> the entire script was ni- nineteen pages long. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> well, just to know what his vision for that character was would would be fairly fascinating. But but again, it, it, and maybe it's just the difference between the studio system then and now. I mean, it seems like with that kind of money being made somebody would have copped and said yeah let's let's get that let's get this going you know even if it does half the gross you know that's a lot of money yeah i would imagine also that he was somewhat a victim of like um the idea of like hey look like i are, are expecting that of like look like i've made all this money like someone better give me like five million dollars for sweetback too i'm not doing it for that's true yeah i'm not going and borrowing money from criminals to make sweetback two like he had to do for sweetback one right i mean right so and so i kind of feel like um in a way he was he was expecting the cavalry to come and when they didn't you know time just has a way of getting away from you yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see him maybe pricing himself out or maybe his his pride and ego kicking in a little bit. You know, I'm not going to do this for, you know, a small share of the of the pie, you know, because, again, you go back to the conventional studio thing. He might be treated more like a hired hand. He may not have final cut. He might not have all of the things that he feels he deserves. And, again, if it's about power plays and and who's kind of lording it over who that that may be you know the, the the line that he was not willing to cross and that people on the other side are not willing to go you know down on his terms as well yeah fascinating fascinating stuff all right well i i, I kind of feel like maybe we can start winding things down a little bit but do either of you have any more that you want to say about the film I, there was one one little piece there that uh, kind of caught my attention that little uh, when when the imp Dave was was chasing uh, uh, Miss Maybell around, it kind of went to this black and white kind of old nineteen uh, twenties kind of silent uh, caper chase scene film. I mean, there were interesting <laughs> things going on because you you feel like Van Peebles has familiarity with the um, the tradition of of black theater. You've I've already kind of mentioned some of that, but you know minstrelsy. You got the the imp characters. These kind of I don't know, not really voodoo or anything like that. But but you know these these are some stock characters or, or archetypes, even if you will. Uh, and he's bringing all of these traditions of of musical performance into into the mix here. And again, I you know Van Peebles had a incredibly perceptive gift and the fact that he wasn't just the director he, he wrote he composed the music he did the lyrics he, and and the casting and that's just another piece of this each character really is perfectly suited for the part they're playing 
Uh, they're, 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 they're talented singers. I mean, not everybody sings. I mean, Esther Roll, she's not a great singer. The, even the, uh, the Trinity, one of the imps, his voice isn't all that great, but, but he, he, he captures that character very, very well, very memorably, at least to me. I, and I've watched this film three times now pre preparing for this. So I've really kind of bonded and invested in this film a little bit here so that these characters have kind of a, a sweetness to them that I really appreciate and admire and and maybe not everybody's going to sit with it that long or, or or invest or dig into this movie to, to the same extent. But I, I really feel like this is a pretty uh, exceptional piece of work. I'm, I'm not sure I'm ready to rank one of my favorites. I think I think Sweetback is still a pretty incredible achievement, and and just the the impact that it made really is 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 quite remarkable because in in many ways it created this whole new voice. Uh, and, and and um it it tapped into an audience and it gave you know the non-black folks of this world a, an opportunity to really look at life in that community and to bring that community you know into what you might consider a mainstream of sorts and and i really feel like um uh, it took a film like sweetback to kind of break through those barriers you know i mean uh, we've talked about Sidney Poitier films on, on several episodes of this podcast, and I'm a huge fan of, of Mr. Poitier, and I, I immensely grateful and impressed for for what he did. But you know, he had sort of been cast into such a role in the film industry that you had to have sort of almost an anti Sidney Poitier voice out there, and that's kind of what was happening at this time. And I, I feel like. Uh, it really was a, a massive cultural shift that, that Mr. Van Peebles kind of initiated in his own way. Not not single-handedly, but he really did, you know, um, he, it was avant-garde in, in the best sense of that word. And, and really, I think the four films in this set really show his versatility, that he wasn't just a provocateur. He, he certainly was a provocateur, but that wasn't the, the beginning and end of, of what he was about. So yeah, any final comments on on "Don't Play as Cheap" that you want to make? I would say I I agree with everything you just said, like very strongly. But I but I also think it's kind of incredible that he follows up a, a film that is sort mm -hmm. of righteously and correctly angry with a film that then celebrates yeah an overcoming adversity and you know, in, in, in a resolution like in a non. Yeah, overcoming it. Yeah. yeah, overcoming adversity by being nice people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like not in a not in a patronizing way, you know, like in a way like, well, you know, we we managed to to be our own people and get along without worrying too much about. Like, there's a whole section of this about you know this book says that and this book says that, but you know we learn from living our lives how it is that, that we 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 run our lives. You know? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a philosophy of life going on. Yeah, here, you know, yeah. People say what they're going to say, but let's talk about what they really do. <laughs> and it's a striking contrast, and it's very interesting to think that one man makes both films, right? Mm -hmm, because I mm -hmm. think they're both two sides of of like a of like a an extremely well-rounded artist, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to say, you know, there are lots of things to be angry about and lots of things to sort of fix in the world, but we also like live our lives and, and manage to, to get along. Yeah. 
with with things the way they are, you know, yeah, yeah. in a way that that is not celebrated that often. And they were done so close together. It wasn't like you know he became a mellow yeah. old man in his in his old age and kind of settled down. I mean, this was right after Sweetback. I mean, right on the heels there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I find it almost hard to express what idea this is in this film without making it sound like he's compromising something because it yeah. certainly does not feel like yeah. he's compromising anything at all. I think that's a, a really you know what I really mean? brilliant point and. Also, just kind of a testament to the way that, um, you know, in many ways, the black power movement, you know, was, um, uh, well, it was taken apart by many forces, uh, some of them, you know, from our own government. But um, <laughs> but it was also uh, an, sort of a strict adherence to ideology. And how many other artists have we watched, you know, at a certain point of mm-hmm. their career, they kind of like box their films or, or other work in by ideology, you know, and they, they feel uh, compelled to adhere to a certain ideology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a true testament of a, of a capital G great artist to not, you know, necessarily fall into that trap, but to retain this sort of expansive humanity, this multifaceted, you know, contains multitudes quality. Um, and, uh, and Richard, I think that that was just a brilliant point to, to bring up there. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. I've I've enjoyed it. I hope listeners have as well. Kind of want to round out the episode with just kind of a few little updates and catch-ups in the air, and I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about where what you're at with your podcast these days. Uh, that that Van Peebles series, I think, was back what back in like what March, April, May, something like that, back in the spring of this year that you did that. Yeah, correct. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and catch up with Richard. Richard, you posted something on Facebook today. This was the end of your four stills masterpieces okay so so you've run out of masterpieces like the, the canon has been exhausted do you have like a do you have a list that you've been working off of or or how does that i was actually just doing the films i five starred on okay. Letterboxd, and this was this was the end of them today which was was so. a clockwork orange was that the last one yes okay. it was yeah so i realized i kind of have to end okay. this unless i moved on to nine four and a half star films, well, and it oh, didn't yeah, feel yeah. like i was gonna don't do don't that, compromise so. man <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah well maybe there'll be a five-star movie in your future you can uh, bring it back right <laughs> i i will say in the last episode we talked about me going on david's podcast and i am doing that this week oh oh so. uh the film swap yeah david seeley yeah, yes just yes, to make that yes david seeley's film okay swap. Yeah. Can you give us the episode on Grindhouse Films? Oh, okay. Is going to be recorded this weekend. We're doing uh, Suspiria nice. and Dolomite. So there's quite a pair. The the original Suspiria, I would take it, right? Yeah. Of yes, course, yes. Of course. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty well, I think I think maybe this has prepped you a little bit for some of that, you know. I mean this, this I isn't exactly it Grindhouse, but it's there. kind of adjacent right now it's adjacent right all right well yeah, especially dolomite yeah, yeah absolutely yeah that's right right down the alley there well excellent well i'm very looking forward to to hearing you have you been on other podcasts besides mine richard only uh josh's criterion channel. oh okay what was that maybe i missed that one or was... that was months and months and months okay. and months ago actually we we shouted you out on it it was on the episode on political films we we, we talked about your <laughs> generosity and in inviting people into your uh, podcast well, I, I, maybe i listened yeah. to it but I'll, I'll i'll have to look yeah, that yeah. one up and dig it out of the yeah. archives there well that's cool I, 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 you're i've talked to him about going on it to going on to it in future too cool so. well no well, Stay you, you're a wonderful guest richard i really appreciate it and uh glad to have you on for uh, today's episode so aaron tell us a little bit about what is happening with behind the slate and uh, anything else you want to share with listeners 
listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So after um, uh, finishing the Van Peebles series, I guess, uh, yeah, in May, I was, um, uh, I'm a, a, you know, I love to, I love to podcast. I love film history, but I am a filmmaker first and I was building up to going to produ- into production on uh, what will become my first feature film, um, which is um, a film called Withdrawal, um, which is about uh, a young couple of, of heroin addicts uh, struggling through a night of withdrawal and um, mm. uh, g- looking back through their relationship, trying to figure out where it all went wrong. Um, and so in that pre-production period, I was not able to do the historical research, which I usually do for the show. And so actually inspired by Van Peebles, who, who wrote a book about uh, his making of Sweetback, and he wrote it before Sweetback was ever released, I kind of asked myself, I was like, well, if, if Melvin Van Peebles was making a movie right now, his first movie... I I think he'd probably do a podcast about it. So I switched the show over to doing um, updates uh, both about um, the the backstory of why I'm making this film um, is is based on my own personal experience and um, uh, about my DIY filmmaking process in the hopes Mm. that, you know, it might inspire or educate or, or just provide perspective to anybody who is interested. And also in the process, I've started to invite on other independent artists um, for interviews and just to, to like, it's kind of turned it, try to turn it into a celebration of independent art because those are the people that I want to talk to uh, that inspire me um, throughout this process. So now I've gone through uh, five days of production um, which I did a couple weeks ago, and now I'm gearing back up to go back into production at the end of October. And once I wrap filming on that film um, and I move into post, I will get back to the historical work and Behind the Slate will return to its regularly scheduled historical programming. Do you have a subject in mind? And if you do, if you don't want to share it, that's fine. But I'm just kind of curious uh, what you got down, going down the road once the movie production is has run its course um yeah i i i have a couple things i think probably like the big series this year i'm going to build up to is akira kurosawa um who who is heavyweight there yeah yeah Yeah. that he like he's he's my favorite um i've kind of like wanted to if since i started the show that's like really what i wanted to do and i think his life is is so fascinating and it gets into all sorts of issues but i was thinking about contrasting uh his story with um the work of uh shin sang ok um, who was, the, you know, this like celebrated prince of South Korean cinema until he was kidnapped by Kim Jong Il. Uh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the Pulsigari guy. Exactly, yeah. the Pulsigari guy. Yeah. Uh, who, which is another just amazing story, and um, it would kind of be this this whole um because they both kind of get into like deep issues of of post-war Asia and inherent tensions both between Korea and Japan and and um. Uh, so I think that might be kind of like the big thing that I dive into over the next year. Well, hmm. that's a fascinating topic on all kinds of you know, angles and dimensions that uh, you, you'll be able to explore there. So very much looking forward to that. Really have enjoyed what I've heard of your podcast and will definitely uh, encourage listeners to go check it out, whether it's the Van Peebles series or more recent things that you've got going on. I definitely very eager to hear and understand more about what you got going with this withdrawal project. I've been over the past, I don't know, nine, 10 months, really since the beginning of the year, gotten involved with the local film society here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which I came into as kind of a cinephile. I like, I like watching movies and, you know, meeting people who have my, share my interest, but there's a lot of young filmmakers 
uh, you know, locally based um, and uh, really digging the energy and the creativity of just with with folks who are about making movies. And, and I'm very curious to know more about what you got going on there. And so I will I will be checking out your work. Uh, do you have a website besides your podcast where you're, you're you have other you know, information or, or even clips or anything of that sort? Yeah, um, you can follow the film's progress on Instagram at at, okay. at withdrawal film. Um, I do have a website, uh, strandcom It needs to be updated. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah, how, uh, how it so, goes. Yeah, so yeah like, it's, it's enough to keep your social media fresh, but then oh your own gosh. website, boy, that's a whole other yeah, piece of work. Yeah, right? <laughs> as I, you know, I, I, uh, David and I started following each other on TikTok. I mean, just keeping the yeah. TikTok going is just oh, oh my yep, god, yep. it's a full time job. <laughs> so um, yeah, but you you can check out. Uh, you can follow withdrawal uh, at withdrawal film. You can follow behind the slate at behind the slate pod on both Instagram and TikTok, and um, and then you can check uh, out behind the slate wherever you get your podcasts great and uh we'll have links in the show notes just uh, scroll down to the bottom you'll see uh the the names of each of the people on this episode and then i've got links to aaron's van peebles episode one and you can just follow him from there if you want to track that down a little bit so yeah definitely check out the show notes on criterioncast.com and and get some of the resources because there's a lot of interesting stuff background on van peebles and reviews of this film there's not a lot of critical discourse out there about this one not not surprisingly given its obscurity but there's some there's some good uh, food for thought out there even a, a review by armand white the much maligned yeah uh, kind of you know uh but yeah, he's got some interesting things to say. I, I won't discredit him entirely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have some differences with him uh, politically and, yes. and otherwise. But uh, he he does know a few things about movies. Were you going to say something there, Richard? I was only going to say I would echo that. I read that review, and yep. it was it was an interesting mix of the very insightful <laughs> and the wildly off. <laughs> Yes, indeed. All right. Well, for my update, my uh, next episode is going to be a big one. Ingmar Bergman's Cries and Whispers. That's one of the the big epic titles of 1972. Uh, came out late that year. I've got quite a few people who have expressed interest in being on that episode. I'll have to do some uh, reaching out to see who's still available uh, in the foreseeable future. So we'll see uh, who we get together for that one. But it is one of uh, Bergman's major i guess what you would consider relatively later works and uh very curious to hear what folks have to say about that so i'm going to try to get that episode together fairly soon all right well aaron and richard thank you so much for uh dedicating part of your night to this conversation it's been a really rewarding time aaron i look forward to maybe connecting with you again and and continuing the conversation this has been very satisfying really yeah happy that we connected and again really appreciate your work on van peoples really rounded out the picture for me and when i heard that and i saw that this was coming i was like i got to get that guy on my podcast so thank you so much again for accepting my invitation oh thank you so much for having me on it's been a joy uh and, and an honor and it's great to talk to you and richard uh yeah love to talk to other people who love movies cool well we will look, keep that connection alive so listeners thank you very much for tuning in uh, give me your feedback find me on the socials there or drop a comment uh wherever you uh find a way to get a hold of me so again thanks for listening in and, and go check out that melvin van people set uh some of these films are only on the box set in the blu-rays some are on criterion channel uh, streaming service very worthy of your time and uh consideration so that's it for tonight bye-bye 
If you see a devil, smash him. Smash him. Cause he ain't about to leave you alone. Smash him. If it's a matter of somebody has to go. Him or you. Smash him. If you want a clean house, eat this lesson. Smash him. But 